The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. In January 1965, Detective Phil Di Natale received a solid lead. A letter from a nurse describing a man who had attacked her. She said the man's name was Albert DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo told her that he was the Boston Strangler after he raped her and bound and gagged her, the same M.O. as some of the stranding victims. Di Natale soon became convinced that DeSalvo was a prime suspect for the Strangler murders. But there was a problem, a big one. He was in jail for the first seven murders. He couldn't have done it. But Phil Di Natale decided to recheck, just to make sure. He went to the courthouse, went through the files, and found Salvo had been released a year early. So thus, Albert was on the street for the first murder. We also found out that he was in the area at the time these murders were committed. Albert DeSalvo was being held at Bridgewater State Hospital for the criminally insane. He'd been arrested in connection with another series of sexual assaults. Phil Di Natale prepared to meet the man he believed was the Boston Strangler. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Is New England. New, New England. Anna Slessers. Ida Erga. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found. They were strangled, strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing. They became sisters in death. Articles of silk or satin. I remember detecting the slightest bit of a tremble in his hands. I, I lost control when I choked her. Episode 7 Bridgewater. Albert DeSalvo had carried out the so-called measuring man crimes in 1960 and 61. He posed as a modeling scout to gain entrance into women's apartments to sexually assault them. DeSalvo's early release came after he convinced a judge that he would turn over a new leaf. But instead, he just picked a new disguise. Reporter Loretta McLaughlin. He was known as the Green Man because he wore those funny green cotton serge trousers that people ran gas stations is what I associated with. The polite modeling scout with the pompadour became the repairman in a green jumpsuit. Here's author Susan Kelly. These crimes consisted of him breaking into an apartment or a house occupied by a woman who was alone, fondling her breasts and pubic area, and sometimes stealing small amounts of money. One of the victims said to him, if your mother could see you, wouldn't she be ashamed? And DeSalvo said, yes, she would, and he left. Albert DeSalvo was arrested in November 1964, 10 months after the final Strangler murder. It's unclear how many crimes DeSalvo committed as the green man. Prosecutors would bring him to trial for attacks on four women, but police eventually suspected the number of incidents was well over 300. 
because of the scope of the crimes, DeSalvo was sent to Bridgewater Hospital for the criminally insane to undergo psychiatric evaluation. Nobody at Bridgewater thought DeSalvo might be the Boston Strangler. Only Phil Di Natale made that connection. But while Phil was meticulously building his case, closing in on the day he could confront DeSalvo, his suspect wasn't sitting still. DeSalvo was making plans of his own inside the hospital. He wanted someone who might help him navigate the criminal justice system. After asking around, he found his way to a fellow inmate named George Nasser. In February of 1965, George Nasser was also being evaluated at Bridgewater. He was in for murder. What's the name you're going to see? George Nasser, N-A-S-S-A-R. Okay. Uh, you just have a seat. You're going to have to wait to get some people to process it. Yeah. While robbing a Texaco station in Andover, Massachusetts in 1964, he'd stabbed the owner, then shot him six times, including one bullet to the head. Nasser already had a long rap sheet for assault and armed robbery. This was Nasser's second murder conviction. Today, George Nasser is 84. Hi there. This is no. This is Ben. I'm Ben, and, and I'm Portland. You're Portland. I was a guy on the Okay, if I put a microphone on you. Yeah, sure. Okay. I visited Nasser in the state correctional institution in Shirley, Massachusetts, where he's still serving a life sentence for the gas station murder. I asked him to describe Bridgewater back in 1965. Bridgewater was a horror place. It was a place of horror. What was horrible about it? Well, first of all, the facility was 1870 was built, all right? And it had um, cast iron bars, etc. painted over a thousand times, uh, so it was thick and crusted. There was practically no heating there, and they put you in a cell with a, with a dirty canvas mat on the floor and um, there was screaming going on actually from the other cells and periodically they would have to take out a prisoner from a cell who had um, smeared himself with his feces etc and you'd peek out the little window in the door and he would he would be naked and they would have towels wrapped around each arms and he would be spread spread eagle and they would march him down the corridor and throw him in the shower. It had that kind of horror about it. Nasser's description of Bridgewater is not hyperbole. The well-known documentary maker Frederick Wiseman shot a feature-length portrait of Bridgewater in 1966. The film is called Titicut Follies. It includes scenes that were so disturbing including electroshock therapy and forced feeding, that the state of Massachusetts went to court to ban the film. What'd you say, Jim? How's that room going to be tomorrow? Right, right. I speak and span, right, clean. What? You clean, Jim? Yes, Jim! The prisoners at Bridgewater spent hours every day in a recreation room, especially during the winter months. But it wasn't much of an escape. This is a very big space with 50, 60 prisoners, some of whom were psychotic. There were two television sets going full blast. They had two 10-pin bowling alleys that were in operation with echoing bangs of uh, pins being <laughs> knocked down. There were bowling alleys at Bridgewater? To, um, 
occupy the uh, patients. So what you're saying is the rec room was a really noisy environment. It was very noisy. You could almost not hear sometimes what was, what was being said. It was in the rec room at Bridgewater in February of 1965 that Albert DeSalvo approached George Nasser. At first, Nasser says, Albert seemed ordinary, just another prisoner. But when he began to talk, he was full of energy. His personality, he was intensely outward. He was mercurial, he was stressed, he was an egoist. When you say he was an egoist, what do you mean by that? means he liked to talk about himself. What did he say? What he said was is that he had robbed 13 banks and that he wanted to know if I could help him confess to those crimes. Nasser says he had a pretty good idea DeSalvo wasn't really talking about robberies. DeSalvo was taking his time, feeling Nasser out. Eventually, when he came around to tell me, he said, it's 13, uh, it's the Boston Stranglings. And he was looking for my reaction. And what was and your reaction? My reaction would have been, oh, I just said, yeah, so, you want to talk about it? Tell me about it. DeSalvo spent an entire day convincing Nasser he was the strangler. He even described the specific hold he used to choke his victims. Yeah, he made a big point about that. He said that the reason why he was so successful in subduing a victim was because he had a particular stranglehold that he had learned when he was in Germany in the army uh, because he boxed and he wrestled when he was in the army. Did he demonstrate that on you physically? Didn't demonstrate it on me, but he described it. It was a double lock hold. It's where you put an arm around the throat at the same time you put an arm around the back of the head and you hold it like this. And the more the person struggles, the tighter becomes the grip. Uh, once the hold was made, uh, it was practically impossible for even a very strong man to break that, that hold. He convinced me that his descriptions of what he did were, were true. He wasn't lying, he wasn't being psychotic, he wasn't being delusional. He convinced me that he was bona fide, that he was the Boston Strangler. And he wanted to know if I could help him get an attorney and guide him in providing for his family based on the sensationalism of the case. Yes, a family. Albert DeSalvo bragged about sexually assaulting a thousand women and now he was saying he'd murdered 13 of them. But he also said he was concerned for the well-being of his wife. Her name was Ermgard. She was East German, and they had met while DeSalvo was in the military. They'd been married 15 years and had two young children. Michael was five, and Judy was 10 at the time their dad was at Bridgewater. Judy had been born with severe hip dysplasia, a condition that required Albert to give her painful daily therapy. The DeSalvo's marriage was troubled and often violent, but Albert had a plan to continue providing for his family, even from prison. DeSalvo told Nasser he wanted to sell his story and capitalize on the notoriety of the Boston Stranglings. 
And to do that, he needed a good lawyer. Nasser had one. A client of mine, George Nasser, mentioned to me that there's a guy down where I am in Bridgewater, and he would like to see you, and he's making noises to me like he might know a lot about these strangling cases. This is George Nasser's lawyer. My name is Lee Bailey. I am presently a trial consultant. For 50 years, I was a trial lawyer concentrating on criminal defense. If any of you should ever commit a murder, my guest tonight is your man. Just write to F. Lee Bailey, care of the station, and send lots of money. This is the same F. Lee Bailey who later defended newspaper heiress Patty Hearst and who was on the legal team that helped O.J. Simpson beat the charges that he murdered his wife. Would you remember, Detective Furman, if you had used the language that we have just reviewed? Yes. That is important enough language to use. In 1965, F. Lee Bailey was just 31 years old, but he'd already helped to free one of the most sensational murder suspects of the 1950s. Sam Shepard was a doctor accused of bludgeoning his wife. His defense involved a mysterious missing suspect. Mr. Bailey, how can a man be in jail 10 years and just now be proven innocent or be released from jail? Because our system has some serious flaws in it. The Shepard case was the basis for a movie and a TV series, both called The Fugitive, in which the missing suspect became a one-armed man. You're entitled to your freedom. And when the court hears what we've got, I'm positive we'll get a new trial. F. Lee Bailey was at home in the spotlight. And in 1965, there was no more sensational crime story than the Boston Strangler. When I asked to see DeSalvo, he was produced almost immediately. Coming up after the break, F. Lee Bailey heads to Bridgewater. The Boston Strangler is said safely to be in Mr. Bailey's hands. Now, back to Stranglers. Now, with this information, we don't have a habit of going to the newspapers and say, uh, Albert D. Salves is a Boston Strangler, and then we'll solve it, or we'll prove it. We had to investigate him thoroughly before we go anyplace. Detective Fildi Natale had spent two months digging into court records, cross-checking dates and locations, analyzing a rap sheet littered with physical violence, sexual assaults, breaking and entering. By March of 1965, he was ready. Di Natale had built a solid circumstantial case that Albert DeSalvo had committed the stranglings in Boston. We had him pretty well tied up. We even knew the color of his underwear. On the 5th of March, Di Natale arrived at Bridgewater Hospital for the next key step in his investigation, to interrogate and gather physical evidence from the suspect. On the 5th, I wanted to talk to Albert Salvo. I wanted palm prints of Albert Salvo. I want a lock of his hair. Phil Di Natale showed up expecting to break the Strangler case wide open. And instead, he was turned away. When he arrived, 
the uh, head of the prison said, I'm sorry, Phil, you're too late. Uh, Lee Bailey was here yesterday. He's going to be his counsel, and I can't let you in without Bailey's consent. If Lee Bailey was one day on March the 4th ahead of me going to Bridgewater, but Mr. Bailey knows and myself know that we were working on Albert H.D. Salvo three months prior to Bailey ever knew about him. Well, I just want this to be on record, and this is the truth, so help me God, that we had him first. That one-day difference transformed the Strangler case. When Effley Bailey went to Bridgewater on the 4th of March, he spoke to DeSalvo by himself for about 20 minutes. When I asked to see DeSalvo, he was produced almost immediately in a visiting room, which I would have to say is typical of prisons everywhere, bare-bones furniture, nothing for the inmates to dismantle and use as weapons, government green walls, bars on the windows, and an atmosphere which is anything but pleasant or jovial. When he walked into the room wearing a standard prison gray uniform, uh, I was certain that this was not the right guy. He didn't look like a violent man. He uh, was well fit. Um, Indeed, he probably could have made a pretty good linebacker, and that's from being solid, not just big. He was about 5'9", 190 pounds, had a very engaging smile, kind of a beak nose, a full head of hair, and he was extremely polite. And it was very difficult for me to morph that person from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde to the point where he could brutally terminate the lives of a bunch of all but defenseless women. What did he say to you in that first meeting? He wanted to know whether or not uh, a fellow who had done some bad things could write a book to support his family if he thought he would never get out uh, of custody again. What'd you say? I explained to him two problems with that. Number one, if one wrote a book admitting to serious crimes, the book alone could be the basis of a prosecution where none would have happened otherwise. And number two, when someone who commits crimes stands to profit from it, the state can come in and take all the income. So, How did he respond to that? Well, he was not pleased because he was hoping for a better answer. But I said, you know, Albert, if you're serious, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but there is no way to get anything off the ground that might be of help to you unless the authorities recognize you as someone of great importance. Let me talk to Boston Homicide. I have two good friends there. And uh, see if I can work up a system that would catch their interest. If we can do that, then we can begin to talk about what will happen to you in the future. At the end of the short meeting, DeSalvo had found his new lawyer. And Effley Bailey wasn't about to let anyone question his client without going through him first. Next, Bailey set off to meet his friends at the Boston Police Department. 
I went to Boston Homicide and I asked John Donovan, the chief of homicide, and Ed Sherry, his crack field detective, to put together a list of questions to which only the guilty party could provide the correct answer. And just to pause for a minute, this is a common technique in cases that are highly publicized. One makes a chart of what the press has reported, and then one makes a Cybrise chart contemporaneous of what really happened according to police files. That shows where the press is wrong or where they had omitted something because they never knew about it. And the standard test is ask the suspect for the answers. And if he comes up with the correct ones, you have to take him pretty seriously. Um, And if he didn't do the crime, he certainly knows someone who did. John Di Natale, Phil Di Natale's son, takes exception to Bailey's methods here. Now think about that today. Somebody's killed 13 women in Massachusetts, and a private lawyer goes to the Boston Police Department and says, give me some information about this serial killer. No one's given him information, but the animosity between the police department and the AG's office was such that they said, sure. John Di Natale believes the Boston Police Department resented John Bottomley's Strangler Task Force. The local police departments had essentially been sidelined. Di Natale says F. Lee Bailey was able to use this rivalry to get facts he shouldn't have had, facts he then put to DeSalvo. So they gave him the information. Bailey went back, and he recorded DeSalvo. I went back to Bridgewater, On a Saturday, I asked Albert six questions. I recorded the answers on a dictaphone. No one can find this recording today, but there is a transcript. DeSalvo said he committed all 11 Boston Stranglings, plus two more no one had yet connected to the Strangler, bringing the total to 13. The hardest questions, the ones police believed only the Strangler could answer correctly, Bailey says DeSalvo answered quickly. And confidently. After the meeting, Effley Bailey took the results not to John Bottomley and his task force, but back to the Boston Police Department. And when I went back to the two detectives on a Saturday afternoon and played the recording, they all look at each other and say, Oh my God, this guy's the strangler. So again, you would have thought the next phone call would have been to Bottomley, hey, we got our guy here, let's go get him, let's, you know. But that wasn't the case. They called the police commissioner out of a black tie dinner and asked him to come immediately to my office. And they said, Commissioner, this guy looks far better than anyone we've looked at in this entire investigation. And I think we should take him seriously. And the commissioner agreed. John Bottomley was utterly surprised by all of this. Bailey was not the attorney on record for Albert DeSalvo, but somehow he had met with DeSalvo twice and taken a confession. A rumor was also going around that Bailey was bringing in a Life magazine reporter for an exclusive interview with the Boston Strangler. And in all of this, Effley Bailey seemed to be bypassing the authority of Bottomley's task force. Now you've got the political forces, as my dad's favorite expression was, the political iron curtain came down. 
Bottomley called up Bridgewater and put Albert DeSalvo on lockdown. No one, not the police, not even Bailey or any other lawyer, was allowed to see Albert DeSalvo. Not until Bottomley could regain control of the situation. And Bailey's firing telegrams back and forth to DeSalvo and his family, saying this is uncalled for, this is unprecedented, they can't deny a lawyer from speaking with his client. To this day, Effley Bailey feels that Bottomley was ignorant of procedures in criminal cases. John Bottomley of the Attorney General's office, who was frankly a nothing lawyer, he knew wills and trusts, Perhaps, indeed, he eventually got in big trouble for using his client's trust funds. But John Bottomley didn't know anything about homicide cases. Within days of his meeting with DeSalvo, F. Lee Bailey was called to a meeting with Attorney General Edward Brooke, John Bottomley's boss. Bailey recalls being summoned to the office of John Spaulding, Associate Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Supreme Court Justice Spaulding banged our heads together and said, stop the nonsense. Mr. Attorney General, you cannot stop a lawyer from seeing his client. And Mr. Bailey, I'm assuming that the story about Life magazine is false. I said it was, and we settled the case, and I got all my permissions back, and thereafter cooperated with both the Attorney General and Boston Homicide. Record American, Thursday, March 11th, 1965. But then somehow, news of DeSalvo's confession leaked to the press. Bailey says he didn't do it. A Norshaw man has confessed that he is the so-called phantom strangler, responsible for the heinous sex murder of 13 greater Boston women during an 18-month period from June 1962 to January 1964, the record American learned exclusively last night. The man is presently confined to a Massachusetts mental institution for other crimes and has confessed to 11... It wasn't Life magazine, and DeSalvo's name was withheld. But the story in the record American created a stir. When asked for a comment, Brooks said he remained skeptical about DeSalvo and the confession. Attorney General Edward W. Brook told reporters that the man, a 32-year-old construction worker, married and father of two children, is no better a suspect than the shoe salesman, quote, washed out some time ago, who also has been in a mental hospital. Brook pointed out that in the past, inmates of mental institutions have confessed to murders they did not commit because they were deranged or seeking publicity. He voiced concerns for the constitutional rights of the suspect, and questioned his competency to retain counsel of his own choosing. Brooks said he requested Dr. Ames Roby of Bridgewater State Hospital to examine the man Wednesday. Dr. Roby examined DeSalvo and diagnosed him with schizophrenia. But neither Roby nor any of the other psychiatrists could explain what drove DeSalvo, what his motives for these murders might have been. In conversations with the doctors and with Bailey, DeSalvo himself said he just didn't know. Albert, he had articulated this several times, but he had very little idea of why he went on this rampage. To better understand DeSalvo, Effley Bailey began with a tactic that few lawyers would choose today, or even back then. He decided that the best way to know if DeSalvo was truly guilty, or just the most gifted liar he'd ever met, 
was to put him into a trance. Let your eyes grow very, very heavy, like lumps of lead, as you sink farther and farther down, deeper and deeper. That's coming up after the break. All right, relax Stranglers. The doctor was a very big man. He was 350 pounds and 6'4". Was this Dr. William Bryant? Yes, it was. Bryant, not Bryant. Dr. William J. Bryant was a hypnotist from Los Angeles. Effley Bailey had studied with him and was a fan of Bryant's, quote, hypnoanalysis. The year I was admitted to the bar in 1961... Dr. Bryan was offering a school on hypnosis for lawyers in Redondo Beach, California. He also taught seminars where people would come and watch live sex in order to be instructed on how to do better at that ancient art. And he was quite famous on the West Coast for these reasons. Lawyers liked him. I liked him. Dr. Bryan believed by placing patients under hypnosis, he could recover hidden memories. I knew that Dr. Bryan had been able to help people whom psychiatrists had given up on, and I thought that he would be especially appropriate for Albert DeSalvo. I felt there was something locked up in his mind that he couldn't get at, that Dr. Bryan might be able to reach. And so I asked him to come out east. Nobody got any money for any of these services, by the way. So can you, uh, again, describe the room and who was there and how it unfolded? Dr. Bryan was in a prison cell at Bridgewater with me. Albert was sitting in a wooden chair, uh, dressed in his prison garb. We had nothing else in the room. Uh, that could have been used as a weapon because we knew that the possibility was that Brian would hit a nerve somewhere, particularly in the subconscious mind, and that DeSalvo might become unhinged. Now, put your feet just flat on the floor. Are you comfortable there, Albert? Yes. No recording of the session survives, but we do have transcripts of what happened that day. Dr. Bryan sat opposite DeSalvo in the session. They were almost knee-to-knee. First, let's just talk a little about the process. Have you ever been hypnotized before? I don't think so. All right, well, let me just say this. You have. You've been hypnotizing yourself for years, and you just haven't been calling it by that name. You go into a light trance rather than a deeper one, which we're going to put you into, and it's going to be more meaningful, and you're going to get more out of it. Brian spoke gently and repetitively. He moved his right forefinger back and forth in front of DeSalvo's eyes. Now I want you to watch my finger. 
Let your eyes grow very, very heavy. Very heavy, like lumps of lead. Very heavy. And as they grow heavier and heavier, very soon your eyes will begin to water. As he entered the trance, DeSalvo closed his eyes. Now, Al, as you sink farther and farther down, deeper and deeper, I want you to visualize in your mind's eye a calendar. And that calendar says the 20th of March, 1965. All right, now relax completely. And now in your mind's eye, I want you to reach up and rip off that page in the calendar. And you're going to find the 19th of March. And then you rip off that page and there's the 18th. And the next page, and it's the 17th, 16th, 15th, 14th, 13th. And you go all the way back through 1964, all the way back farther to September 8th, 1963. And when you get there, the calendar will stop. The calendar will stop on September 8th, 1963. Brian stopped at September 8th, 1963, because that was the day that Evelyn Corbin was strangled. She was victim number nine. It's not clear why Brian chose that murder over the others, but DeSalvo described the scene readily. I walked in the front door and the buzzer rang, and I opened the door... And I walked down the corridor all the way to the left. I moved open the door and I, I talked to her. All right now, just stay as relaxed as you are now. Very relaxed, way down. That's the idea. You are talking to her. You hear her voice. You hear your own voice. You can tell me what you hear right now. What is she saying? She says, who sent you? Who sent you? The superintendent, there's something wrong in your bathroom. I got to check it out. She says, oh, just a second now. I'm, I'm going to church. I walked in and, and she walked in with me. Relax, deep, deep, relax. I don't want you to remember, Albert. I want you to be right there. She uh, took me into the bathroom to the right. And when she went in, she turned her back to me. And I put a knife to her throat. Dr. Brian guided DeSalvo through his memory of Evelyn Corbin's murder, nudging him closer and closer to the moment of crisis. I took her over to the bed, and I, uh, I took her over. Yes, all right. You, you take her over to the bed. Now what? She said she, she can't do nothing. The doctor told her no. Yes, okay. She said, please don't hurt me, please. I told her I won't hurt her. All right. You won't hurt her. You don't want to hurt her, do you? No, I didn't want to hurt her. If you don't want to hurt them, then what do you want to do? You put your hands on her? Yeah. He began to make this motion of opening and closing. And Dr. Bryan figured out that it was somebody's legs. Judy. Judy. That's right. Judy. You were working on Judy with those thumbs, weren't you? I don't know. 
At this point, the transcript indicates that DeSalvo began to cry. Judy was DeSalvo's daughter, the one born with the painful hip dysplasia. The condition distressed DeSalvo, and so did the treatment. And it was his job as her father to take her legs and force them apart and together again like scissors, even though that was painful. And she cried, and it made him feel badly, um, but he kept doing it, and she got better. She's crying. She's crying, yeah. Keep going. I think I'm hurting her. I, I, I don't mean to hurt her. I'm, I'm going to help her. And he told the doctor, sometimes you have to hurt people to help them, which we thought was pretty significant. Go on. She doesn't understand. She's a child. She doesn't understand. You have to hurt her to help her, huh? That's it. And how can you hurt her? Yeah, come on. Hurt her. Hurt her. Hurt her. I stretch her legs. Yes, that's right. Hurt her. Hurt Dr. Brian kept at it, asking over and over why Albert hurt these women when he thought he was helping them. Dr. Brian jumped him at that point, trying to shock him into a memory. And he said, and that's why you killed all those people, because you have to hurt people to help them. Isn't that right? Here, the transcript says DeSalvo let out a, quote, loud, uncontrolled scream. And and DeSalvo came out of his chair and knocked Brian 12 feet across the room into a wall and had his hands on his throat before I could make a move. And Brian, who was pretty well trained, said, sleep. Sleep and relax. All right, sleep. And he collapsed on the floor, and we could not resume the session after that. Relax deeper. And deeper, deeper, and deeper. I thought to myself, this is the stuff of novels and fiction. I had never seen anything like it before, and I have never seen anything like it since. Bailey says this session did help him understand his client. He says Dr. Bryan revealed a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde conflict inside DeSalvo, a battle between a concerned father and a misogynist killer. And as far as I'm concerned, Dr. Bryan, he's the only one that ever got close to an understanding of where this guy's wiring was all tangled up and short-circuited. After three years of round-the-clock work and public scrutiny, to have a suspect in custody might have been a moment of relief for the Strangler investigators. They could finally interrogate, cross-check, prosecute, and convict someone and deliver the justice they'd been seeking. But with F. Lee Bailey representing the self-confessed Boston Strangler, nothing would be so simple. The Boston Police Department had given information to a private lawyer A confession was recorded on a dictaphone, and news of that confession had been leaked to the press. The attorney general was involved in a showdown over legal access to a suspect, and a hypnotist had traveled from the West Coast to visit that suspect in a Boston mental hospital. And all of this happened in just the first two and a half weeks of Effley Bailey's involvement with Albert DeSalvo. 
But none of F. Lee Bailey's dictaphone confessions or hypnosis tapes impressed John Bottomley. The investigation required an official interrogation, and Bottomley decided he needed to be the one to interview DeSalvo. But to do so, Bottomley still had to go through DeSalvo's lawyer, and Bailey would only allow access if Bottomley agreed to one extraordinary condition. Why would the attorney general's office ever agree to that? Because they had no choice. The attorney general could either take it or leave it. Bottomley took the deal and then took DeSalvo's confessions, hours of grim detail, all recorded on tape. What happened to you when you grabbed her? I mean, what was going on in your mind? Do you remember that? Uh, all I knew that it was the feeling I had? No. Next time on Stranglers, Albert DeSalvo's story and the extraordinary deal the attorney general made to get it. A deal that kept DeSalvo from facing justice for any of the murders. I only saw the back of her head. And just like, uh, it was all uh, hot. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks this week to the officials at the State Correctional Institution in Shirley, Massachusetts, to Ben Avishai, Gabriel Graben, Jessica Loftus, and Josh Estefan, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are Paul DeBoy, Robert Creighton, R. Ward Duffy, Charlie Thurston, Denise Cormier. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Di Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. I knocked at the door. What did you say? I told her I'd come up there to do some work in the apartment. Next time on Stranglers. So and then she told me that her other roommates are out. We delve into the confession tapes of Albert DeSalvo. In total, there were almost 60 hours of confessions, but every answer was scrutinized and cross-checked. My dad and Andy would take those tapes and they took each murder individually and they broke them down. They wanted to be able to distinguish where Albert could have found that piece of information. But it wasn't just DeSalvo's answers that caught the attention of investigators. Bottomley's conduct of the interrogation of DeSalvo was very atypical. The Confessions of a Strangler. Next time 
on Stranglers. <laughs> <laughs>